listening to Subtext and Discourse, a podcast about visual art, the art world, and life in general. Hosted by Michael Dooney, co-owner and director of Jarvis Dooney Gallery, as we continue our series of interviews with participants of the 2019 Postcard Salon. In this episode, I speak with Korean-Canadian artist Kat Lamora, who briefly visited Berlin during April this year. Kat was in Europe, specifically France, for the Paris Ass Book Fair, an international fair curated by Vice, that brings together publishers of artist books and fanzines, booksellers and artists related by their exploration of taboos, sex and gender. Kat was there with Paris-based Korean-French collective Studio Hap and the Sad Art Store from Toronto. I've split this conversation into two parts as we spoke at length not only about Kat's work, but how their unique personal narrative has shaped their view of the world, growing up as a Korean immigrant in Canada, being part of the LGBTQ community, addressing internalized racism and coming to terms with the myriad realities of cultural identity. So without further delay, I present part one of my interview with Kat Lamora. As I understand, you were in Paris last week? Yes, I was. You said briefly before you were at a book fair or something? Yeah, Like, what was yeah. the event that you were at? Uh, I was at the Paris Ass uh, Book Fair, and it's a art zine fair uh, curated by Vice, mm-hmm. and they invited people from all across the world internationally, uh, all these uh, queer artists and uh, presses to come and uh, display their work there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was uh, collaborating with a studio called Studio Hop, based in Paris. It's a Korean-French uh, collective, and also Sad Art Store from Toronto, Ontario. Mm-hmm. And uh, the vein of the work that we speak in, we are all queer artists, uh, except Studio Hop. Um, but it was to talk about the Asian diaspora all across the world that isn't really brought up when you know in context of queer communities. And so we thought it would be interesting to go and sort of take up the space there yeah. and see who we who we meet, what we encounter, things like that. Yeah. Oh, so the book fair was geared towards the LGBTQ community? Yes, it was. Oh, it was right. at uh, Palais de Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was pretty central. There was a lot of people who came by, different people from different queer communities all across the world. We met people from, you know, San Francisco one day, Miami the other, mm-hmm. and, you know, like Amsterdam, like all over the place. So it was oh, wow. really interesting. And were there many other, like, because you said about the, the Asian community or the kind of Far East community, were there, mm-hmm. was there a big, um, yeah, was there a big contingent of people like, from your part of the world there, or it was still no. quite small? We were actually the only table in the entire oh, really? fair that uh, consisted of any Asian artists, so that was quite a quite a treat. Oh wow! But um, I think that the the sort of diversity, you know, I live in a bubble in Toronto, yeah, and uh, there's a huge Asian population compared to the rest of the world uh, that is just sort of part of the main, you know, community there. Uh, mm. Whereas when I went to Paris, it was quite surprising because. My my friend, um, who also was a part of Sad Art Store, we were walking down the street and we would hear all of these racial slurs being yelled out at us. Yeah. And it was very different, the atmosphere, the sort of the the attitude towards Asian cultures. Oh, really? So it was, it was definitely a struggle trying to understand what that relationship was between, A, the fetishization of East Asian cultures or, or Southeast Asian. And of course, Asia is such a broad place we're talking about. Exactly, yeah. And then the, also the anti-Asian, you know, racial, you, 
I guess, racism that we encountered. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely a struggle trying to understand and process that sentiment because we're very, we were very new to it at the time. Yeah, wow. Have you, I guess, have you recounted it since coming to Berlin or because you've only just arrived? After I left Paris and I landed here, that was the end to the racial slurs. I have never heard a word, anything even close to what we heard. I mean, we were at a cafe in Paris and Mm -hmm. uh, an an old gentleman brought his dog into the, the cafe and the owner says, oh, I'm sorry, we cannot have dogs in here. Because we're serving food as well. Yeah. Uh, and he looks at us and we were lined up to buy coffee and he goes, Oh, so the dog eaters can be here, but me and my dog can't. Oh, sorry. And so it was something, it was, it was very, I mean, I hadn't encountered racism in Canada until after like 1997, 1998. Yeah. That was sort of like the, the last stragglers catching on to the to the new world so to speak of immigration the diaspora population and integration and then to come to paris which is a very you know in our eyes like in north america there's this huge romance about paris yeah and to encounter that that was very jarring the the contrast yeah definitely i think Mm -hmm. even my wife and i living coming from australia and then coming over to europe like where we often have the impression in Australia, oh, we're really, you know, we're really behind and which, you know, we have whatever closed-minded perception of the world. But then arriving in Europe, you're like, wow, it's not nearly as diverse. Like mm-hmm. there is diversity in the, on the whole, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, it's concentrated into all these different areas. Mm-hmm. And I think even for us when we came over, it's like that was the first thing we thought was, where are all the Asian people? Yeah. Like, because <laughs> in, I guess in Australia, we are, we're, I guess we're a Western a Western country in Asia. Mm-hmm. So we have like a mixture of both cultures and we grow up with it and for us it's a normal thing. But even here it's yeah, it's still quite a it's still quite new somehow. And mm-hmm. I think yeah, before yeah, at the very beginning like, oh we need to go to a nice Thai restaurant, can't find one. Mm-hmm. A good Indian restaurant, can't find one. <laughs> good Japanese somewhere, we can't find any. Right. Like there's good Vietnamese food here because there's a big Vietnamese community. Mm-hmm. But that's it. It's yeah, it's really yeah, it's really strange, I think. And it's, I suppose it's the kind of thing that you take for granted because you don't really really realise until you kind of go outside. Yeah, as you say, you go outside of your bubble and you're like, oh, wow. And then, yeah, yeah I guess to encounter it as well. Because I think well, the first time I came to Germany, like years and years ago, I'd never seen that kind of open racism in the street where people mm-hmm. shout stuff at other people. I'd never seen that before ever. I'm like, holy shit, like this is, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not really very, like, it's, yeah, it's quite, it is quite jarring, I guess, because you never really expect to, to encounter it yeah it was really just a an interesting moment where i had to think about what i was doing as a as a person as an artist because mm-hmm. you know my work comes from a place where as a young girl when i moved to canada for the first time i didn't speak a lick of english i just barely knew my abcs and you mm-hmm. know the numbers the little greetings and that was about it how old were um, you when you emigrated i was in grade four so i think that's like, like eight, eight yeah, yeah eight seven or eight. Yeah. and uh that was the first time that I encountered racism in Canada, as I said before. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, do you know what Tim Hortons is? The, the North American brand? So it's no. this like very cheap coffee joint. It's, it's, it's like Canada's favorite, like coffee place, I think, pretty much. Uh, so it's a Canadian brand. And I remember walking in, I held the door open for this very old, um, matronly sort of lady coming in. Yeah. And, uh, 
I think she was afraid that the door was going to close on her because she didn't see me holding it. Mm-hmm. She put her her hand up towards the door, and then she saw me there holding it. And her hand had, by this time, already touched the door. Yeah. She looked at me. Her face just turned into this crumpled sourness, and then she just wiped her hand slowly on her other arm on the sleeve, you know, front and back, and just to make sure that it was it was clean. Oh, and then God. she walked in. And so, you know, things like that would happen very casually until a lot of, you know, Asian, you know, people from all across East Asia specifically, mm-hmm. the Chinese, um, the Koreans and the Japanese, you know, a lot of people trying to study there and learn English, uh, they moved and then it became this place where, I, and I lived in Vancouver, so it was very, very, very Asian, mm-hmm. um, concentrated population there. And so I actually didn't understand, I think, the severity of the anti-growing, anti-Asian sentiments growing in, in Europe because yeah. I had heard about it, but I didn't think about it. Um, and my entire work is also based on, uh, the internalized racism that, you know, that I just sort of absorbed and I, and I hated everything that had to do with Korean culture within me. So, you know, like I would get made fun of for bringing Korean lunches to school. So I stopped doing that. You know, oh, that's so stinky. Oh, it looks so gross. What is that? You know, and oh, I like your hair. You know, like, can I touch it? Can you bow like one of those Chinese dolls at the, at the restaurant? All these things thrown at me and these microaggressions, you know, they, they build up over time. And before I knew it, I had stopped speaking Korean. I had stopped celebrating Korean holidays. I had stopped wearing Korean clothing. I wanted to identify as much as possible as a, uh, a white Canadian girl. Yeah. And that meant that I was cutting my roots away, this tree, its roots just literally being hacked away. And, you know, there comes a point where you kind of look at it and you go, I don't think I can survive this much cutting away of myself. Yeah. Um, it's, it's surgical. It's, it's brutal. And so I think my work is a, a work in progress of trying to reclaim my, myself and, and my culture. Because I am not quite uh, of the diaspora because I wasn't born in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I am not quite just simply a first-generation immigrant because I had already cut away so much of my culture, which I feel terribly guilty about even now. And I, I go home and, of course, I, I speak the language now much better. I have relearned it. Um, it, it wasn't frozen at a grade four level anymore. Oh, okay. That's um, I was finally speaking like an adult. <laughs> uh, I, it was, it was just, uh, quite a journey, uh, to process. And I thought that I, I had, I had gotten to a comfortable position within my inner voice, inner self, and then my work. And then I came here and then I realized there is still work to be done because it is not fading away or diminishing here if people are so proudly yelling out racial slurs in the middle of the street in broad daylight they it's like they don't feel shame as 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 you know people who know that racism is bad would mm. it's it's almost like children who don't know any better you know they 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 don't know shame it, it was almost like that so Definitely gave me a lot of material, a lot of things to process when I get home. Yeah, <laughs> to definitely. say the least. Gosh. Yeah. I suppose hearing all that, I understand a lot more of the of what how you or what how and why then through your work you're addressing a lot of the 
how can I describe it? You, you're kind of like you have one foot in one culture and one foot in the other culture, and you kind of have this internal pull in either direction. Mm-hmm. That where do I de- where who with whom should I identify more? Like, do I belong here or do I belong there? I guess how do you please both? You know, both sides of who your who your identity is. Mm-hmm. And I think that conversation was definitely dominant up to my teenage years, even a little bit into my university years. But I think very uh, in Paris, I, with the Studio Hop group, um, I met somebody who is a Korean person living in Paris, and they had mm-hmm. only been there for about two and a half years. And we were having this conversation about the racism that they encounter, you know, the attacks. Yeah. You know, they actually get physically attacked in the in the street in the evenings. You know, people will come in and elbow them in in the chest, in the stomach, and then run away laughing. Yeah. Um. So it's it's quite serious there, I think. Um. But we were having this conversation about how we cannot ever be outside of our skin. You know, no matter yeah. what we do, it is perceived as a a Korean thing. So you know, if I went to, I I made music. It would be suddenly music made by a Korean person, yeah. not just you know music that anybody made, and um, how we just cannot seem to ever escape that identifier from the rest of the world, uh, unless we are at home. And so I said to I said to her I said if I am Korean, which I am, and mm-hmm. I'm very proud of it, and uh, I think it's time that we just embrace it and acknowledge it and for the rest of the world to see to take it as deeply into our ourselves into our roots as we can go with it because you know if we cannot escape it then why ever run from it yeah and i've tried running from it and i've definitely heavily regretted that for a very long time and when and i still and i still struggle with that guilt so yeah yeah i think that's what my well, that's what I'm trying to do these days is to understand how can I embrace it even further than just the identifier of I am Korean. Mm-hmm. Where where do, where can I go with it now? Now that I have accepted it and appreciate it and not taking it for granted. Yeah. Is that just been the recent thing for you? Like the last, I don't know, like five, ten years? Definitely. It's like I'm comfortable with who I am or I'm mm-hmm. comfortable in my own skin and I should well, I shouldn't have to apologize for who I am and mm-hmm. be more, I guess, self-compassionate and accepting towards who you are and your, your, I guess, your heritage. Yeah. How is then? How has the response been to your work? It's because, been. I mean, all the people that have that have seen what I've shown them, absolutely love it. Like, oh, this is really amazing. But they don't know. I guess they don't know the the deeper meaning behind it. Mm-hmm. How has it been for you when you've presented the work and you're available for people to? To talk to you about it. It's definitely been very emotional, I think, um, especially for people who are immigrants and come from the immigrant background with, you know, first generation or second generation immigrant parents. Uh, but it's, it's actually very refreshing. I did not think that the work would be so, I guess, readable to all people from all backgrounds. Um, and when I've shown it in Toronto, especially the, um, Abrant recently, mm-hmm. Uh, so the first one that I did was a minuet, and then the second one that I did was a huge scale, was ten foot by eight and a half foot. So. Is that the one that's on your website in the yes, window it is. in the shop window? Yes, yeah, uh, it's in really the gallery big. window space. Yeah, it's yeah, huge. It's, it's huge, um, and uh, that was quite emotional. A lot of people came up to me and they said, "I think I understand 
you know, what this is trying to say. And everyone has their own interpretation of it. But a lot of um, uh, one particular Korean Canadian friend came up to me and said, this is heartbreaking, but in a very good way, because it's sort of a reminder of how, you know, the many eyed beast, you know, we everywhere we go, even living in that Toronto bubble, mm-hmm. we are still the many eyed beasts. We get the stares, you know, we get the the fetishization. It it never it never leaves, no matter where we go. And I think if we were to return home, then we would also get the inverse of it, like, oh she's or you know, they're from somewhere else. You know, they they stayed somewhere abroad, so they're a little bit kooky or a little bit weird. Yeah, or you've yeah. come out, you've somehow betrayed your origins exactly. by living somewhere different. Yeah, like oh, things must have been good for you to be able to leave the country and go somewhere else, and you know, like these kinds of stereotypes and and judgments still exist, you know, everywhere for anyone. So so after I forgot the name of the first one. The Abarrant. Mm-hmm. So what you so that one I'm probably gonna say this word wrong as well, the mm-hmm. Gyopo? Yes, the Gyopo is um a specific word in the Korean dictionary for mm. the diaspora who have left the country, immigrated, and have actually not stayed in touch with their roots. So I very ident- I heavily identified with that word because of course I was talking about the internalized racism Mm -hmm. and how I was starting to cut my roots away. And I think that there is also judgment from the Korean side as well for kyopos. It is not a kind word. It has a little bit of a... That doesn't sound like a nice word. (laughs) Yeah. It has a bit of a a slightly derogatory... It's not completely derogatory, but there are better ways to phrase it. Much better ways, actually several, to, to say, you know, this person immigrated elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and possibly because, you know, for, for them, like you mentioned, it, it does kind of feel like a betrayal to see people that are first generation, second generation Koreans that have, you know, that, you know, cannot speak the language very well, you know, and from the, the motherland's eyes, it can't, it can't come across very well. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think if I know, when I'm thinking about it, a lot of the people, well, the Turkish Germans that I know, I think they, um, they encounter that same, um, I don't want to use the word prejudice, but it, it is in a sense because they're German, but they're also Turkish, but then they're not really accepted by either culture because Turkish people may view them as not real Turkish because mm-hmm. they're from here. And then they can't, people often complain, oh, they're German, it doesn't sound the right way or whatever that it is. And then you're like, and then they're kind of stuck in between, well, where do I belong then? Am I just some, se- I'm separate from both both cultures, which I simultaneously identify with. Mm-hmm. How is it with, um, like, I mean, I suppose you said when you were at the book fair in Paris that you guys were the only table with people from Asian descent. Mm-hmm. I feel like, and yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but within North America, especially when people go to the USA, they become American. And then whatever, wherever they came from, that kind of, they leave that life behind and then they adopt everything from the new country. Whereas if I think about a lot of people who emigrate to Australia, depending on, I suppose, all of it is, I guess, your different personalities as well, but like friends of ours that are Italian-Australian, even though they're the kind of third or fourth generation, they still sort of keep and identify with that initial cultural heritage that they have. 
is in Canada, is it the same? Or have you experienced anything different since being in Europe, the I people think, that you've met here? Uh, definitely in North America, there is this growing sense of appreciation for our countries and our cultures that come from home. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in the United States, the people that we met, um, someone who came from San Francisco, she is also an artist who lived in, who was born in San Francisco, lived to, moved to Japan for a little bit, moved to Paris. We were having this conversation about how it's so different um, being able to celebrate the cultures that we come from together. Mm-hmm. And it's this instantaneous bond that the diaspora has. And, and I know in Toronto, a lot of the diaspora groups, no matter where in Asia, this huge continent they are from, we kind of end up bonding and socializing, even with the, the very intense political climate in in specifically East Asia, because I I can only speak for myself. But even within that, we are able to sort of socialize outside of that context, which is the power of the diaspora, I think, uh, in that we can share, intermingle, and and learn from each other uh, without having to answer to the political... Uh, currents that are going on yeah exactly back in the homeland and i suppose because you have that you have that commonality that you're from that part of the world Mm -hmm. and i think even and this probably sounds really ignorant but when i was studying and there'd be groups of different students from asia Mm -hmm. and everybody's speaking english to one another so well they're from different countries and their mother tongue is totally different Mm -hmm. so they need to speak a common language so most of the time that's going to be english and i think a lot of people yeah, often don't appreciate that, that it is, it's the same as people from Europe. They're not all speaking European. They're mm-hmm. speaking, you know, Spanish or Italian or wherever they happen to originate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess to answer your question in a very long-winded way, <laughs> <laughs> it would be that um, despite uh, living in Canada, we are still very much able to appreciate the places that we come from, mm-hmm. the cultures that we we have within us. That do you go back to Korea often? I do. Usually it's once a year. And oh, nice. I spend quite a while there uh, because I still have family members back at home. Mm-hmm. And so I'm still able to call my home home and go back, enjoy the, the pace of life and not be a tourist in my own country. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's so many intricacies, I think, to... To, you know, going home, you know, do I go home if I have a home there? If I don't have a home, do I need to stay at a hotel? And being a tourist and a foreigner in my own country, what does that feel like? So there are so many questions that even I cannot answer because I'm not in that position to, to understand. I can only say I, I can empathize to a certain degree. Yeah. But even then, there's a lot of intricacies within the diaspora community. And I think there's a lot of, Pride, yeah, strength that comes from it now uh, compared to even 10 years ago, 15 years ago. The new generation, my generation, I think we're starting to really speak up. I mean, I'm sure the sentiments and the thoughts and things were were still present, mm-hmm. but I think it is uh, very recent that we are given the privilege to, to speak out and have a voice in the community in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Well, even thinking about your experience you described in Paris and in other places where or the experience you had in Canada but you know in the 90s where people are looking at you as a less than person Mm -hmm. that's yeah hopefully that doesn't exist anymore and maybe that's then why you have to that you feel on a equal platform with other people that you can voice your opinion and people can listen to you and appreciate what you're 
what you have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I hope that that happens in Paris soon. <laughs> I do love the city for for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, outside of races, I mean, it also felt like I was somehow losing to them if I didn't have a good time there. <laughs> yeah. Because they were trying to make me feel unwelcome and, and afraid, and so my whole, you know, the thing at the end of processing all this information that I was encountering was I need to have the best possible time here and yeah. make the best out of this as possible because that would be the only way that I would win. Yeah, well, it's good that you can keep optimistic, I think, about the, <laughs> yeah. the whole experience because it would be yeah. quite confronting. Yeah. That brings us to the end of part one. The second installment of the interview will be online in the next days. Below, I've included links and images to more of Kat's work. In the meantime, please follow us on social media, support us on Patreon, and we of course welcome any feedback to this interview or the ones prior. That's all for now, you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse with myself, Michael Dooney.